0: House. of course i can't go she's no worse than mrs jay gould i do not receive mrs gould i do not attend her entertainments mrs ogden mills you go there carrie mrs mills was born a livingston her family have been landowners for two centuries or more it is not my fault she married an upstart besides her mother asked me not to punish her for it and i won't so why punish mrs russell she has come from nothing and her husband is no better you called him a force to be reckoned with well it does not mean that i am obliged to sit in his wife's drawing room i think you are being unkind my dear to be a leader means sometimes one must be unkind it is not a role for the faint-hearted
1: Welcome to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. This is Caroline.
2: And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing episode eight of The Gilded Age, the penultimate episode of season one. This episode was called Tucked Up in Newport. It was written by Julian Fellows and Michael Engler was back to direct once again. I believe he is directing episodes seven, eight, and nine. I think he'll be back next week too to direct the finale.
1: I know penultimate episodes are your favorite.
2: My favorite to say... You know, I I feel like we just said this in uh, Yellowstone not too long ago, or 1883, just a couple of weeks ago. There comes a time in every show's life when it's the penultimate <laughs> episode of their season. It's an important time.
1: It's the penultimate, the penultimate, the penultimate. We should have some sort of weird sound effect for that one.
2: Penultimate. <laughs>
1: that really matches the gilded age
2: it
1: does i'm sorry that's beautiful just a community note if you want to continue the conversation and get some extra history notes please join us on facebook in the gilded age fan group parentheses hbo series
2: no oh that's not how to behave agnes you naughty minx Uh, Caroline, tonight's episode theme, it jumped out at me. It was secrets. 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 Everyone's got secrets in this show, it seems. And tonight's episode revealed some of the doozies. It deepened a couple of other mysteries. And it introduced actually one mystery, which I am I have no idea where we're going to go with that. Here's the thing about secrets, though. They always come out eventually. So it's better to control your narrative. Admit the secret first. I feel like that's the lesson of tonight's episode.
1: Yes, always preemptively admit to it if you can. You know what our listeners should uh, make sure that they do? What? Make sure that they've watched this episode because there are going to be spoilers. We're not going to go step by step and recap the episode, but please make sure you've watched the episode before you listen to the podcast. Then come on back.
2: Let's start with the resolution of the Peggy secrets. We have been tracking this and been wondering about it and been been puzzling over it. I feel like all eight episodes of the season that we've seen so far tonight, we got the reveal and we were, you know what, I'm going to give us a gentle pat on the back. We we had deduced that it was going to involve a man, right? And once we got a name in Elias, we both agreed Elias was going to be around which her secret, secret. Uh, revolved. And we were kind of right about it. He was a major part of her secret. D- just at a high level, what did you think of the story? D- is this what you predicted? Was it so much worse than you feared it might be?
1: Yes, it was much worse than I thought it was going to be just in terms of the the pain that Peggy was in and all the different things that she had to unravel here. You're right. We 100% figured out that there was going to be a guy involved that dad did not approve of. But after that, I never expected there to be a baby. We were told
2: the baby Baby is dead. She was hunting for the midwife just so she could get some closure. She wakes up and the baby's gone, snatched from her, and she's just told that it's dead. So maybe there's some motherly instinct that maybe is worrying that the baby isn't in fact dead, or maybe it's just the fact that she needs closure. It makes sense of why she contacts, why she's contracted Mr. Rakes, why her worry would be that her father would find out if she was using a person of color as their law as her lawyer, and they would get back to him because it seems like he was involved in the entire cover-up of the whole thing. Really devastating. Let's listen to her unfold the tale.
3: You've waited long enough. I told you a man called Elias Finn changed my life. Yes? I didn't tell you that I was his wife and the mother of our child. What? You have a child? I had a child, a son. In fact, I nearly died in childbirth. But when I finally came around, he was already dead. After that, my father took me back to New York. So this didn't happen here? No. I met Elias in Brooklyn, but my father didn't approve. For him, Elias had no prospects. And was uneducated. So when I saw it was hopeless, we left for Philadelphia. By the time my father found us, I was married and pregnant
2: now on top of being a devastating story I think this is a good job of explaining why she has so much anger towards her dad one of the things that we've wondered about her story was whatever it was going to be why generate so much animosity towards her father justified now that you know the story is she completely justified in how she feels about what Arthur did
1: yeah especially because he hasn't come around at all like he still isn't supportive of her despite the fact that she's back here in New York and you know it's just uh he's got a one-track mind he's She's got to follow his path and his path only.
2: When her mom, Dorothy, says things like at the end of the last episode, like, don't cut us out. We can work through it. Don't cut us out. And then at the end of this episode, she's, you know, she's explaining that... Your father is going to have a problem. You move back here and you want to continue working at the Globe. You know, I'm glad Peggy just didn't fold up. She said, well, I can move out again. You know, she's not going to take anyone's bullshit. She's certainly not going to take her father's. But man, I mean, yeah, he's just unretractable, not backing down. He's not given an inch. Doesn't seem like he's had a whole lot of sympathy for her situation. This whole idea of just move on. I mean, it's not like it's not like you fell down at the baseball game and you tell your kid to get up and like walk it off. Yeah, she thinks she's lost her child and his and he and 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 now her husband was taken away from her. So and his advice is just move on, just forget it
1: it's crazy i mean it's so insanely dismissive of her her feelings all of you know the just her life plan you know in general he does not care he only has one idea about her this is impossible i do not see how they will possibly ever make amends do you think they possibly can
2: i can't unless he gets on board trying to help find the midwife so the reason she's in Doylestown is because she got information that the midwife had moved from Philadelphia up to Doylestown. She couldn't find her there. That's how she met Marion. Mr. Rakes's report here, this final note that gets intercepted by Armstrong, and we're going to talk about that bitch, was that he couldn't find it. It seems maybe Arthur would have a lead. The only way I think he could ever begin to make inroads is if he gets on board trying to help her in this mission of finding the midwife so she can get some closure. But I got to tell you, I don't see him being open to doing that. It no, seems wait. like this has been a completely done and dusted affair. He doesn't want. Want to talk about Philadelphia he doesn't want to think about anything to do with Philadelphia because if he did if he if he felt anything like that wouldn't he have already done it wouldn't he have said I see you suffering, let me help you in some way?
1: I just don't think he cares like that. I think he is willing to have her be sad and have her be upset, provided she is following, you know, the life's path that he wants. And other than that, he is not going to assist, which is just crazy to me. I don't know what would possibly change his mind, but I, I it is not happening anytime soon. This is
2: sad on so many levels. It's sad because almost dying in childbirth is terrifying. Waking up after almost dying in childbirth and to be told that your child has died and you never get to see it. I mean, Agnes and Ada wonder aloud, which was the baby christened. She has no idea. She can't answer these questions. She never, she never got to hold her. She never got to interact with the baby. She has no idea. Is is horrible and and terrifying and and a parent's worst nightmare. And then to have your husband run off. Uh, piling on and then to be told get over it move on don't deal with don't think about it just forget about it and restart your life how much can a person be expected to take and when it's your father that is literally you know cracking the whip and and driving forward all of these things how could she ever why would she ever want to reconcile with him to her he's got to appear the biggest monster so i've been thinking i was thinking about that and i was thinking back to the episode where marion comes and has that awkward interaction at the house Dorothy and Arthur after Peggy has left have this discussion
0: Miss Ellen can you fetch my gloves please we haven't had my birthday cake you're welcome to join us Miss Brooke
3: you're very kind Mrs. Scott happy birthday and many happy returns
0: yes mother many happy returns but we're going now Oh, we have certainly taken a step forward today. Thank you for that.
4: Dorothy, our responsibility is to raise a child with a sense of right and wrong. I cannot put that aside to play happy families. No. And it's not a game we are very well equipped for, is it?
2: Arthur, I don't think you're teaching right or wrong here, I and mean, you're nor you're teaching you're not teaching love you're not teaching empathy or sympathy. Or respect in any way. Or, yeah, respect or common courtesy or decency. You're, you're failing across the board. I get and I, you know, and I was on board to an extent when we listened to that clip. I remember saying, I get Arthur's POV here as a dad trying to instill good values in your kid against the tide, you know, that that may pull them away. But I, but I remember tempering it that he would have to find the middle ground or else he would risk losing his daughter and his wife altogether. Now, knowing what he did and and how his role in all of this and all of her trauma unfolding, that clip seems like such bullshit. It seems so insincere. He's just a megalomaniac power controller.
1: It 100% feels like uh, you are glossing it all over and making it sound like, you know, she was like 13 years old and not married and ran off and did all this crazy stuff. And you're just trying to rein in this wild child, not a married woman, you know, who had a baby like this is not it's not what you wanted, but it is not like going against right and wrong and all that stuff. Like there's nothing wrong about it.
2: Also, that clip is from episode four, not episode five. Like I said before, I apologize for being wrong. Uh, That's a perfect segue, though, about painting the wrong picture on a story, because on top of everything that Peggy has to talk about in this episode to Marion and finally tell us, the viewers, what her story is and what she's been through, she's only in this position because her hand is literally forced by Armstrong, forcing her to come and tell her story to Agnes, her employer, which... It's just the worst. I mean, Armstrong is really just the worst. And I know there are people out there. It was just in our Facebook group this week, be like, "Oh man, that that scene with her mother really made her sympathetic figure." No, fuck her, <laughs> fuck that bitch. I hate her. This is this is the pinnacle of why she is a horrible woman. Let's listen to this clip where Agnes finally gets involved.
5: And this midwife, did she bury the child? Did anyone christen him?
0: Oh, that poor innocent.
3: I don't know because I never found her. I hoped Mr. Rakes could help me, but he wrote and told me that he couldn't trace her at it. So that
5: was the letter that Armstrong read? Well, I was concerned. Silence, you will have your turn. That was the letter. Of course, there is much in your story that Armstrong did not glean. She said you bore an illegitimate child whom you then abandoned. That's not exactly. I find now that you were a married mother His child died. I've lost children. I know what that is.
0: You do, Agnes. And we should have...
5: Yes, yes, but now we must decide what to do with Armstrong. I was only trying to protect the reputation of this house. I could say the same. You may go.
1: Oh my goodness, Ada's little voice when she's like, "You have Agnes." I was like, "Oh my goodness, little sweetheart." Like, my heart was breaking across the board for everyone in that room. Like Except for was- Armstrong. Except for Armstrong, definitely not. She was kind of in the doorway, so I'm not counting her in the room. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I really felt like everybody was just raw in this scene. Armstrong has no excuse. The second Rakes handed it to her, I was like, no. (laughs) Like, this is going to be terrible.
2: Same with you. As soon as he gave it to that devil's pincher fingers with her (laughs) horn tail and pitchfork, I was like,
1: no. Yeah,
2: and the way she's gloating when she's they are down for tea, and she's like, "Oh, we've all got secrets, don't we, Peggy? <laughs> oh, wow, uh, you bitch! So
1: horrible!
2: <laughs> Burn in the hells of the hellfire!" I like that it backfires on Armstrong, that Agnes not only listens to Peggy's story and is supportive of it, but can can empathize. I've lost children. I know what you're going through. Not everyone in this room can can say that I can say that that is a bond between Agnes and Peggy that no one else in that room, as far as we know, can can share or take part in. Armstrong didn't plan for that. Just like the prejudice comment from last week, she sees when she was saying, you know, I'm worried about her scribblings, Peggy's scribblings in the honor of the house. You know, Agnes sees through it and says, you know, you're not protecting the honor of this house. You're you're besmirching the honor of this house.
1: As long as Armstrong has been in this house and as much as she knows Agnes. And last week, she'd already gotten that smackdown. Why in the world did she think this would be a good idea? That she thought going into Peggy's stuff more, continuing into this, like man, I just felt like this was really a misstep on her part. I don't know. She's just so hellbent. She's one of those people who just, we talked about blinders last week. Sometimes when people just have this idea and they're just going to keep barging through, even though this really makes no sense for Armstrong to stir up trouble, when she just got told to knock it off.
2: She thought she finally had the smoking gun, right?
1: Oh, I get it. But I'm just saying, boy, does she not know Agnes? Because this didn't turn out that way at all. It's almost like she was knew and didn't know agnes and didn't know how she would respond even though she had already protected peggy once so i was like oh boy you just really don't get it how long
0: is she here for and why is she here at all
4: because she performed a great service for miss marion i'm going to bed good night i think
0: that miss scott seems nice which is all you know yes it is
4: and I'm sticking to it until she proves me wrong
1: That's all very well for you to say But they're coming up here now to take our jobs
4: She's not taking anyone's job
0: See? She'll disrupt things I told Mrs. Bower but she
4: wouldn't listen Maybe we need a bit of disruption She's
2: been knives out from jump. That's from episode one. She has had it out for Megan. She finally thought she had the smoking gun. This 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 harlot, you know, Scarlet Woman of of bad morals with her unwed child. You know, this bastard child that she's brought into the world, abandoned. Right, right. I mean, just painting like the worst, like Dickensian like woman that she could kind of think of. Which brings us to the question that I think fans are going to wrestle with and have a problem with and struggle with is. But at the end of the day, she still has a job and Peggy is out of the house. It's such a feeble
1: excuse, that because it is just, I don't want change. I don't want to have to deal with having to figure this all out to such a huge detriment. And at first, I thought that Peggy would say something like, I wouldn't stay no matter what really changes. Like, I need to move on. But when she says, I'm not going to stay with things as they are now, it like so opened the door as if like, if you just got rid of Armstrong, I could stay. You know, it wasn't like this, like 100% I'm leaving no matter what. It hurt my heart. And yeah, I think... I think a lot of people are going to be very angry and it doesn't really make sense. For as much as Agnes has defended Peggy and told Armstrong to knock it off, Ada doesn't like Armstrong. It's like, you know, why do we have to keep doing this? It does really give a lot more weight to the Agnes will do whatever it takes to stay like status quo, no matter how ridiculous it is.
5: Can I persuade you to stay, Miss Scott? I can't. Not the way things are. Really, Miss Ada's right. It ought to be Armstrong who goes. Seems very feeble on my part. I couldn't let you do that. It would be too disruptive. I'll be just fine. I hope we can end on good terms. Of course. I remain very grateful for the time you've let me spend in this house. You're an impressive young woman. Not everyone will support your ambitions, to say the least of it, but you are strong enough to manage that. Thank you. I'll try to be. And now you'd better go if you were to catch the last berry. Goodbye, Mrs. Van Ry. Goodbye, Miss Scott. And may God bless you.
2: I wanted to play the clip right there because you said the magic word of calling Agnes feeble in her excuse. And and Agnes herself admits it's feeble. This this laziness, or it's not even laziness, it's it's complacency and it's this
1: staunch traditionalist in her that will not stop feeling like it is better to keep everything exactly the same, no matter how insane the situation's getting. Which would
2: require Peggy to compromise her own values and dignity to continue living in that house. taking lunch downstairs being around this this devil woman no of course she couldn't and agnes respects her for that but not doesn't respect her so much that she's actually going to to take action here you know it's cute and it's funny when it's banister in the doghouse uh, because uh, in a grand scheme of things not a huge offense even though she's treating it like it's state secrets, it's it's very funny here it's a similar situation: a servant, a longtime servant that should go for disloyalty and and beyond, you know, like uh, uh, crimes against humanity. You know what or what Armstrong's done here, and she's also getting to keep her job. What do you have to do to get fired uh, from the Van Ryn household? You know. Apparently
1: have standards and respect for yourself and <laughs> not be willing to deal with any of this because I know Peggy wasn't fired, but that's what it takes to basically like leave this house is be like, I'm not playing by these old school rules. Now,
2: I give Peggy a lot of credit here. She she really takes the high road. She says all of the rights, don't burn your bridges, things here. Very similar in in leaving and fire in being fired in a way, like a force firing, kind of like Turner last week where Turner could have burned bridges and slashed it to the ground she had impulse control and decided to exercise her will another way peggy here also could say some very horrible nasty things about agnes about her commitment to this this relic way of life about armstrong and what kind of bitch she is she could say some really things and and not be wrong on any of it but she does it they, they grasp hands which i thought was a very nice moment think of the times and for agnes to grab her hand it, it, peggy looks taken aback you know she's mm. like you get you're holding my hand like she kind of Gives her that kind of look, you know, and she has nothing about respect. Even when she goes to her mother's house, she's a little snarkier, you know, about it. When she's relating the story to Dorothy to her mother, she says, you know, she let me go versus getting rid of the old bitch or whatever she says. So she doesn't <laughs> say bitch. She, says the old bitch. She, she doesn't say bitch. That's my word because I'm I'm fired up right now. Um, but she does, she's a little snarkier. But even then, she still has the grace and commitment to agnes to say that her mother sounds like agnes when she says you're full of potential you just need to go out and seize the world she says you sound like agnes you sound like mrs van ryan and you know Dar- which dorothy takes you know and stride and says well then she can't be all that kind of thing peggy's great she she's she's too good for this world she's too good for these people she's too good for this world i'm sorry to see her leave the van ryan employment uh what what happens to between her and Marion and their friendship i mean in the end we were friends she tells her mother which is a big thing.
1: You know, we still have Peggy coming back to get her stuff, so that feels hopeful. I think that Marion will do anything she can to keep a hold of Peggy. She does know where Peggy lives, so that feels positive. Other than that, though, I don't know why Peggy would reach out to Marion. I could definitely see Marion reaching out to Peggy. Axis. No, you're totally right. Perhaps, you know, it is going to be something that she's going to hang on to. I just think that—I don't know how close that Peggy would want to get back to that whole household. That's some toxic stuff she just went through. She didn't want to have to share that story with anyone, much less Agnes and Ada. I mean, it was one thing to just come clean with Marion, but God, to have to deal with, like, telling everybody, that's— Ooh, it for would Bridget, really be for horrifying. Jack, because they're
2: all going to know the story for Bridget yeah. and Jack
1: and Bauer. She's such a private person.
2: Even if she went about telling all of her business to everyone all the time, this is still the story and a chapter of her life that you know she would keep close to the vest if she could.
1: This is her worst nightmare. This is the last thing she wanted to happen. Yes, and being I, forced I into it for makes her. it
2: yeah, a, hor- a horrible event with, with far-reaching and far- and long-lasting consequences and made so much worse because you're now forced into telling it. She's forced into telling the story twice. She has to tell Marion, and then Marion's like, yeah, you got to tell my aunt. And is forced into telling it again. Uh, interesting that Ada was so forceful. Was that interesting to you that she was so forceful in her dislike from Armstrong? It's, it's rare to get Ada putting on a stern, cold voice
1: it's rare but she's also been the voice of of just sort of like a common sense from the standpoint of like these are the these are the facts and this is what I know it's that very rose nylon kind of thing that we talked about from the very beginning like she is not gonna be swayed by any of the extra societal stuff that Agnes cares about over just like having a good heart and basic good values and that kind of thing so I feel like ADA is you know she is the most innocent and sort of pure of them all and she could see evil for evil. And so I was happy that she spoke up and not really surprised. Because it wasn't coming off like gossipy or rude or something like that, which I wouldn't really expect from her. It was coming off like I can see who this person is and she's a bad person, the end.
2: Uh and it made my love for Mrs. Bauer grow that much more too. Also, I mean she's the one who gets the ball rolling really. And storyline, she gets the ball rolling when she goes to pay Miss Ada her dollar. And Mm -hmm. she said and she lingers and says and Marion's in the room too. Armstrong is plotting something against Peggy. I don't know what it is exactly, but she was too happy with talking about her. And it's something that's making her smile, whatever she's going to do. So good insight by Bauer. I like how Bauer had Peggy's back from the moment that she helped her out with her debt situation. That fostered a bond that Bauer stayed true to. And I, I appreciate that about her. She's back in Brooklyn now, but she's willing to move out if her father is going to give her stink eye about continuing to work at the Globe. How do you think that works out? Arthur, this uh, untractable man who hasn't given a ground, finally has his daughter kowtowed back in the house, all of her secrets laid bare, stripped to the bone, vulnerable. Is he going to now continue to jump up and down her bones, you think, about working at the Globe, force her out of the house again?
1: Man, I think just Peggy's willingness to be able to leave tells me that she's not really stripped to the bones. She still has willpower and dignity and respect for herself that she will not put up with that. I'm willing to think that she will leave. So he can't push that hard. And whether he tries to, I mean, God, at every turn so far, he's pushed. So I don't see him stop pushing on her. But I don't think she'll put up with, you know, this, some sort of devastating blows from him, I think she will leave again. She's a strong person. She's not a delicate, vulnerable person. She's a vulnerable person who finds strength in that and still can manage to, to find her way. And so I I don't think that she is going to be, you know, just bowled over by him with whatever nonsense he throws at her
2: to be clear, Peggy does not own smelling salts and will not require them.
1: When you get hurt mixed with anger and then it's so freaking unfair, none of this should have happened. That is very fortifying. I, I feel like she can lean on that
2: the indignity of the situation that she's forced to bear here i think she actually ends up sharing a lot in common with bertha which we see at the very end of the episode but before we get to newport and all of those shenanigans let's the natural transition here is to marion because when they are talking about what to do about armstrong and ada makes the plea shouldn't it be armstrong that goes and not peggy marion has this quote here where ostensibly she's talking about Peggy and not changing her mind but maybe it's a good thing but she's also kind of talking about herself let's listen
0: wouldn't it have been better to lose Armstrong and have me
5: train a new maid in all my ways at my time of life maybe Miss Scott will change her mind
3: she won't but perhaps she's right perhaps the time has come for a new chapter for
0: all of us how final you make that
4: sound. How
2: final you make that sound indeed. Uh, Marion, this is not the room. These are not the people. Agnes Van Rijn is not the aunt to play, to, to, to the pitching new chapter bullshit. She's specifically choosing to reread the old chapter, not going on to new chapters.
1: <laughs> not only that, but we talked about this in the last episode. Man, just. Freaking, stay in your lane. Don't start philosophizing now about like, oh, this all change things. If you're going to be doing some sort of clandestine business, remember, stay doing what you always do. And this isn't the way you talk. This is why you're you're getting everyone's feathers ruffled here. You don't talk like this. So quiet it out,
2: Marion. Let's start with uh, the beginning of the episode where Aurora, Aurora gives a red flag warning to Marion that she, as Marion is wont to do, immediately rejects it.
0: Marion
5: What is it? I don't want to be one of those awful best friends Who delights in bringing unwelcome news Go on I worry about your Mr. Rakes
3: He isn't my Mr. Rakes Exactly Well if he isn't then I'm
5: glad He seems to be everywhere these days You know we were in the same party when Edison
3: turned on his lights He told me
5: I just worry for you
3: Please don't
2: I appreciate Aurora here, and we gave her a lot of credit for last episode for seemingly having a lookout for Marion and, and noting uh, Mrs. Bingham and, and Mr. Rakes being a little handsy and flirty and champagne but – damn it, could she be a little more specific here? May, make it harder for Marion to reject your red flag warning that you're trying to make her aware of. Did you think that too? Like uh, some more specific. Yeah, specifics I just here?
1: like vague stuff like that where they're like "Oh, maybe I should be like looking around like, what? Just tell me the tea, man. May- Go look at the
2: drawing room at 3pm. Oh, yeah, you know? I, yeah.
1: I don't like any of that business. Like, I just want to know what's up. Now, I feel like Aurora is trying to walk a line because she doesn't want to be casting aspersions and obviously she doesn't want to malign, you know, Mary. In here, so I get it, but Mary needs to hear this stuff. She wasn't there. At least, just give her like the facts, you know, and not just sort of like a fluffy version of it.
2: Or, or maybe Mary asks a follow up. Be like, well, that's pretty vague.
1: What happened to Marion's questions? Where where did her uh-huh. like, little question bag go? You know, she used to be like every time someone would say something, she's got a who, what, when, where, why to follow up. And then now it's like now you just oh you tell me something oh okay I take that all right.
2: She heard our podcast and she uh, she changed <laughs> her ways. We heard her feelings. Oh, she you stopped know why? her questions.
1: She doesn't want anyone to ask questions to her, so she's like uh... shut her trap. Do you see? She deviated out of her lane again. She should be asking a bunch of questions. That's. Marion! You
2: ask questions, Marion. That's your you thing. You just
1: do. That's your whole business here. Where? What? When? Why? <laughs> what do you call this?
2: <laughs> yeah, I, at least a follow-up is... You You seem like you're giving me this warning here, but your evidence that you've only proffered so far is that he's everywhere all at once. Bitch, I'm trying to help him with that. Uh, so do you have something more specific you'd like to tell me? Like, is it just the natural follow-up?
1: But no, of course not, because she doesn't want to know anything bad, right? She's That's the deal. She's not going to ask any questions because she doesn't want any information. Last week, she told tom that it sounded like he was trying
2: to convince himself right of his love whenever she does this stuff here or doesn't act or you know willfully ignores these red flags it feels like she's trying to convince herself of her feelings and and how true their love really is the worst possible outcome of this is, the, is, of course, the bad book of choices, right? You and I joke all the time about uh, so many shows. It feels like the adventure, you know, choose your own adventure book, but all of the choices are bad. Uh, she chooses the worst possible adventure by taking Aurora's advice here or warning here and forcing her into decision to agree to marry him, right? Let, let's play the clip where she goes and uh, talks to Peggy. This is some classic bad logic of youth
3: are you busy what's happened nothing except i think i know what i intend to say to mr riggs which is only that i'm ready i wasn't sure before about eloping but tom thinks that aunt agnes will never come round until after the wedding i'm happy if it's what you want i'm surrounded by doubters aunt agnes aurora Fane. The only way to silence them is just to get married and have done with it. You can't leave everything up in the air indefinitely. And at least that's a decision.
2: Kids, when someone says, I'm happy if that's what you want, if your next words are, I'm surrounded, so I have to get married to shut them all up, <laughs> that's not a good answer to the question of
1: if it's what you want. Yeah. <sighs> She really hasn't ever decided her own feelings here. It is only on defense that she's doing this, you know, and that's so sad. That is not why you should be doing anything. Not get married. Good
2: Lord. She is saying to Peggy here, I'm going to marry him to shut everyone up. I am tired of Aurora's doubting. I'm tired of Agnes. I'm tired of Ada. I'm tired of all the doubting. So I'm going to get married. And, you know, Peggy says, well, it's a decision. Which I mean, like she's being a good friend here, in so far as I support your girl because it's maybe what you want. <laughs> Listen, you're someone who your friends ask you and I come talk to you.
1: exactly like that sometimes. Where I'm like, that's a thing that you're doing,
2: right? I want to ask you though: <laughs> Is this the time to for for real talk friendship? Though, like we've seen Peggy give to Marion, or is this the right tact in this case where Marion is taking this position of I've made a decision.
1: I have to be Peggy and say, I have had a situation where I was in love with someone, the people closest to me disapproved and made it so difficult and I had to run away. And so I know what this feels like. So I think she's seeing herself in Marion and no matter what Tom is actually like, no one a hundred percent really knows, even between these two women, they don't really know what Tom's like, but Tom has helped Peggy and has been generous with his time and and has tried to answer questions and stuff like that. So At this point, I think she's just trying to be the person she wished she was telling these things to back when she was trying to figure out what to do with Elias. You know, I think that's what I'm I'm seeing here. She just wants to have someone support Marion because she wasn't supported when she was in the same predicament.
2: Especially given what Peggy is going through in this episode. I think that makes a ton of
1: sense. Yeah, I mean, she's back in that old moment, right? Of having it's not, no one
2: on her side, right?
1: Yeah, and plus it's not a healed situation for her, what's going on with with Elias and, and you know, that whole situation. So she's very, like, raw right now. So I got to think she's like, make your decisions, girl, and stick by them and just freaking do what you want to do. Because Lord knows, you know, these people are never going to give up trying to steer your ship for you.
2: I'm shocked that Mr. Rakes wasn't in Newport for, for the weekend plans that everyone's having so much fun. It seems mm. like the exact thing that he would, be, he would be at, but I guess he has to wait around for this marriage question, which Marion tracks him down at his office, and they have this discussion where they've decided to elope the most romantic of marriages.
6: Have you thought about what I said? And Mrs. Chamberlain's?
3: You're right about one thing. Aunt Agnes is never going to change i hate to make her unhappy truly but she won't change
6: not until after the wedding at any rate she'll come around when we're married but not before
3: so this is the moment
6: it's time to take matters into our own hands
3: and elope
6: people have before now
3: but if we elope won't i have ruined your reputation won't i be an anchor around your neck (laughs)
6: A very nice anchor around a very willing neck. Please,
2: Marion. I know this is right. Just as I know we'll regret delaying when we could've made it happen. Isn't it romantic when someone tells you that you're a very nice anchor around a very willing neck?
1: Yeah, but the part that like got my little like like hair up was when she was like, You're right about one thing. Like, <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> that would imply she actually doesn't agree with the majority of things you've said. No, Ooh. I don't think she agrees with any of this. She's, you're, she doesn't, but to tell him that, I'm
2: like, oh! I mean, she told him last week, she's agreeing to marry a guy that last week she said, I don't think you really love me, I think you're just trying to convince yourself that <laughs> that this is what you want, but let's oh, do it, man. baby! I,
1: listen, I feel so bad for her. I understand that she is feeling so pushed, and we have to remember, he gave her that weirdo you know, kind of situation where it was like
2: if you love me you'll marry me
1: Not only that, but if you don't, there's all these sideshows and things that are going to catch my eyes. Okay, so then when Aurora comes in and says, I've been seeing Tom all over the place. At the sideshows. Yeah, it would basically like reignite that fear and be like, oh shit, like you're totally hanging out in sideshows. If I don't lock this down, it's over for me. He basically already warned me of that.
2: You said it perfectly. You said it perfectly before I played that clip. She is acting from and is always acting from at least romantically – a place of defense when you're just reacting instead of acting the way she is your decisions are never the ones that you wish you could have made. They are just reactionary. They're not thought through. You're just being pushed into knee-jerk reactions every single time and it becomes like a cycle and that's what she's doing here. She's just reacting to situations. All right, Aurora's telling me now. Enough. Agnes is telling me enough. I'm going to get married just so I, I stop listening to them. I have to marry him because because he's going to cheat on me otherwise. So I so I'm reacting to that. I've
1: got to lock him down. It's just reacting. She's not acting with with forethought. She's not running towards Tom. She's running away from all the doubters. That is textbook. Don't do it.
2: Textbook. Don't do it. The thing that was making me even crazier in this episode, and it was just a little moment, but it's consistent with all of the little moments we've seen them have. Larry Russell, when him and Oscar meet Marion outside and they're getting ready to go to Newport, uh, Larry has come by with the carriage to pick up Oscar to head to the train to go to Newport. He's so kind and sweet to her on a human level that no one else, including Mr. Rakes has treated her that way. And I'm just sitting here like, look at my boy Larry he's got these puppy dog this whole puppy dog thing about him and I get that's not for every woman and and women do like a man who's decisive right think back to that first clip with Mr. Rakes, from the episode two where he's at the door and he's like I go after what I want you know like with like red meat in his mm-hmm. teeth and like <laughs> women are into that I get it but you have Larry here this is classic this is why good guys go bad it's because the nice guys like Larry they're just they're not even they're just used like doormats right they're, they are they He's not even on her radar, it seems, which is heart crushing to me. He's so sweet to her in there. He he's so shy. He doesn't know even what to do with her, and she's in, he's invisible. He's she's just like, where is the guy who's ultimating me? Like, get him, go get him from the sideshow. I gotta marry him, you know. Like, <laughs> she doesn't even see Larry. Ah. Oh cut bigger fish
1: to fry right now. She can't see Larry.
2: She's got to go get her man from the sideshows. She's mm-hmm. got to b- put her aunts in their place by marrying this guy and and his and her cousin.
1: See, I like the interaction between Oscar, Larry, and Marion because no one was romantically interested in each other. All three of them could just talk and be normal people. And for like a hot second, you actually had some like, what you were feeling that warmth and everything. It's called friendship. And they were all just like being friendly and cool with each other. And there wasn't all this like, you better marry me or else. Like, there wasn't all this tension that has been following Marion around. Like this was the first nice, friendly, pure you know conversation that she was having with someone of the opposite sex. It was really nice.
2: Let, let's be let's remember the only time that Mr. Rakes is not trying to emotionally manipulate Marion into marrying him the only like small talk that they have is when he's talking about other women it's the yeah. only it's the only cut con- the only non I love you I love you marry me marry me conversation they have is where he's talking about other women on his social calendar he's getting horned in the opera box he's uh, getting sissy Bingham drunk uh, at Edison's light show and he's telling her all this like they're like in a locker room, that's that's their small talk conversation. That's like their, their non wooing conversation.
1: What are we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> I don't even know if there's wooing, there's just proposals and demands and kind of threats. <laughs> yeah, it's
2: it's like uh like hit her with a club and drag her to the cave kind of wooing.
1: So well, I'm scared for this elopement biz. I mean, how do you feel? Do you think they're going to go through with this? Do you think that Marion will be able to to hold out and actually be able to to even follow through on such a plan? Or what do you think? Or is this a season two? Like, are they going to dangle us in, at the end of this one? Uh,
2: this feels like big season one finale energy. Maybe it's left at an altar kind of thing. Maybe it's her running up the, al- up the aisle and like, I can't do this without my aunt's present kind of thing. I don't know. I know I feels like it's going to reach some kind of crescendo pinnacle, big resolution or reveal next week in the finale. Uh, Marion is not a backer-dower. Is
1: that a backer-downer?
2: She's committed to doing it. I don't see her running away. I don't. I see her going through it just out of spite, just out of out
1: of honor to her word. I don't. Yeah, I think honor to your word, not spite. But yeah, honor.
2: Well, I mean, she's getting married. She's agreeing here under her logic that she's giving to Peggy. It's a little bit out of spite. She's not using the word spite. Isn't that a synonym for I'm tired of all the naysayers and the doubters?
1: Oh, no. I think spite is doing something that hurts the other people. I think in this case,
2: well, I think I think it's going to hurt her. <laughs>
1: I think she's doing it out of feeling like she's backed in a corner. This is what yeah, I, I was talking about last week when I said Agnes has to be careful about playing these games with people about saying, oh, I'm going to take everything away from you and testing people and doing all this. It's a it's a bad idea because she does have recourse. There was things she could do. This is one of the worst things she could do.
2: Uh, Agnes's entire plan is is revolving around her certitude that she understands that Mr. Rakes is not the kind of man, he is a backer downer, that his social climbing status will not allow him to make this match. So and I and I agree, he is the weak spot. I think if this falls apart, I think it's because of him one way or another. I think she is the kind of person honored to her word, her own code, the rules that she lives by. She has said this now. I think that's why she has wrestled with it. How many episodes ago was it at the torch hand where he proposed to her in Madison Square Park? How many episodes? Four episodes ago, now that 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 happened and she's finally given her her answer. She has taken the due deliberation. She has left him waiting for an answer. So now that she has made the decision and now that she has pulled the trigger, I don't see her backing down. If it doesn't happen, I see it's being because of him.
1: I agree with you. I also think of the two characters, he is far more unpredictable. His head is turned very easily. His attention span of a gnat. I 100% think he could just get another invitation that day and put it off or do whatever, you know, where he doesn't have any real need as much as he's saying he wants to close the deal. Really, anything else could keep him busy that day.
2: It's true. It's, it's going to be like, Maren, we've got to get a loop by 11 because 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 I got a sideshow at noon.
1: (laughs) If he would have gotten an invitation to Newport, he'd have been like, I got to get to Newport. We're going to have to do this when I get back. Something like that. You know, like, it's just that simple. He's so unpredictable.
2: Right. It would have been like he would have brought the strings with him, put him, set him up in a corner and been like, Marion, I love you. I love you. Marry me. You've got to give me an answer. I love you. I'm going to Newport. I've I've got I'm, I'm checking up with baby fish. In Newport, right. I've, I'm going to be her boy toy for the weekend. But when I get back, I love you and you've got to marry me. Basically,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: I'll be gone 10 days getting stuffed up in Newport. But when I get back, you and me, baby. I mean, that's kind <laughs> of like Mr. Mister. That's how it
1: feels, deal. right? Like if a better invitation comes along, dude's not showing up. That's how I feel.
2: Guy's are walking STD for sure.
1: <laughs> Unpredictable. Well,
2: let's head to Newport. We've talked about Newport a bunch and I think a lot, uh, a lot of – interesting character development and interplay and watching Bertha on her long long ladder. I mean, this is the next step, right? Getting to Newport. This is where the rich play at this time in history. I loved all of the historical things that they dropped in this whole section of the episode. If you head to our Facebook page, there's going to be stuff on chateau sur There's going to be where John Adams is staying with the Wetmores. That's a real place. We're going to have information about Beachwood, the Astor's House that we see and hear about in this episode. Stuff about Bellevue Avenue, which really was the avenue to live on if you were in newport at this time but overall what did you think of this whole newport section did it live up to the hype did bertha handle herself well with mamie fish and all of the other circus atmosphere aspects to being up in newport
1: Well, I think Newport in general was super fun. It looked like someplace I would want to hang out for sure. And I think that Bertha did a great job. I mean, it's really all about her managing her relationship with Ward, first and foremost. But she did a great job with Mamie Fish. I mean, she was completely harassed the whole time. Anytime old Miss Fish could say something a little bit, you know, looking to poke the bear, Bertha handled it very, very well. So kudos to her. I think that she knows she is just like a step away from her goal So far, she's managed to keep everything cool, cool, no matter what people are throwing at her. Why aren't the rest
5: of you playing? I expect they're enjoying the sun. Nobody talks about anything else
0: but enjoying themselves. Isn't that what we're here for? Not me. (laughs) Dear Mrs. Fish, you're so contrary.
5: How is your husband doing, Mrs. Russell? I'm sorry? Aren't they putting him on trial over that train crash? I thought that was why he stayed in New York. If it were, I would have stayed with him. Oh, so he's not in trouble. Not in the least, but he has too many meetings to be able to join us. He likes to be thorough. Oh, I see. Uh, Mr. Reynolds, go and fetch me a drink. I haven't bungled it, have I?
4: Oh, no. She'll like you the more. Of course (laughs) Miss.
2: Mamie fish doesn't just do creepy doll party she likes to play with her human food too before she eats it she's super aggressive at that scene when she turns around and steps at bertha not me i care about it like i was like you're gonna what are you doing like you are invading her personal space but ward says you you're doing perfect
1: Yeah, I mean, she kept it very cool and Mamie is a slippery fish, I tell you. She's somebody who's just going to keep coming at you, and she does back off. Like, if you say something good and it's like you volleyed it back, she's willing to just back off and, like, retreat and then come back again. So she is just having fun. This isn't really like she's trying to take down Bertha.
2: If she takes down Bertha by chance, then Bertha wasn't worth her time and deserves getting taken down. But if Bertha can survive the volley, I think Mamie likes the play. And it's kind of win-win for her she either is savage and reduces the person to tears and then she wins or the person goes toe to toe with her and then she has fun right but that's kind of what Aurora says in the clip during the dinner which uh, the tenacious compliment scene Uh, let's play that clip too because I think that's really where Bertha gets the confidence that she's she's made the right steps on this Newport trip
5: your mother looks very gay she had some good news from New York before we left What's this, Mrs. Russell? Good news from New York. Has your husband got off? No, no. He just wanted to wire me how well things are going and send his best wishes to all of you. Hmm. Oh. So tell me, Mr. McAllister, have you persuaded her to buy a place here,
4: or better still to build one? I can only show Mrs. Russell the options. I would not claim to have persuaded her to do anything. She's tenacious.
0: I'll give her that smile and take it as a compliment it is a compliment if
5: you knew the number of times she's pretended i didn't exist and now here i am at her table because i'm tenacious just as she said and because you amuse her more than she thought you would
2: <laughs> you've amused her more than she thought you would
1: I've people like that though in some ways like i don't want people to like come at me but i don't mind like volleying back and forth like there is something that makes me feel alive when i'm doing that with people and you know it's it's you've done it a million times right where you're just kind of there's some barbs in there but it's all in good
2: fun i admittedly like to play with my food
1: I know you do.
2: <laughs> I, I, I am more Miss Fish than I probably care to admit. Um, and I don't make any apologies for that. I think it's interesting in this scene. This is the first time since Ward has met Bertha that they haven't been next to each other at some sit-down function. It almost felt wrong because he was down by sitting to Mamie uh, Mamie's right hand. And she was at the other head of the table sitting with Oscar and Aurora
1: I was kind of surprised she was at the head of the table.
2: Well, remember, this is a dinner explicitly for the new people.
1: I guess she's the highest, right?
2: She is the highest ranking of the new people. She she is literally the one bringing the new people entourage. I think that's well, how... Well, and it we all know ranging. that
1: Ward likes to be next to the gossip. So he's not going to... Well, he probably could head the other end of the table, and that would actually make a lot of sense. He just wants to sit close to Fish so that he can hear all of her shit.
2: So when Mrs. Astor eventually falls from grace in about 15 years from when the show is taking place right now, the Gilded Age Society it begins is run by... Uh, uh, three women. Uh, what Mister uh, Missus Astor used to do by herself is then taken over by a triumvirate. And Mamie Fish is one of them. Alva Vanderbilt is one, and I'm blanking. I think it's Mrs. Golette is the third. But maybe Fish becomes Mrs. Astor or a third of Mrs. Astor formally at the as the head of society. So Ward knows. Ward knows she's an important word. You know, she she's she's not like the godfather or the godmother, but she's like a you know like a capo. She's like a like a head of like a smaller family kind of thing. Ward knows that, so he's got to sit at to her right hand because that's that's. Where the power is, you know. So <laughs>
1: well, and it's fun if she's the one being sarcastic and saying like sassy comments and stuff like that, which is totally me. Those are the types of things where I've had people say like, oh, "I want to sit next to you because I know you're gonna like say a lot of shit over here." So, man, where would you want to be if you're Ward? I don't want to go sit by Miss Fish.
2: This episode was interesting because we finally got to meet Mrs. McAllister, who we heard a little bit about at the end of last episode, right? That's how this whole Newport conversation actually came about uh, when Charles Fane uh, jokes to Ward. That uh, Mrs. McAllister must be very forgiving because Aurora watches everything he does like a hawk. Ward says Mrs. McAllister is tucked up in Newport exactly where she wants to be. That's how they get on the conversation in Newport. So we get to meet Mrs. McAllister in this episode. What are your impressions about her? Does she match this larger than life ward that we've come to know?
1: Well, I thought she was a sass. I thought she was, like, saying stuff that was, like, not very, oh, I don't know. Nowadays, we'd say PC or something like that. But she was just, like, saying whatever she thought. She she was fun in that regard. I think she says things that, well, Ward can say it, like, out of the side of his mouth and be kind of like, ha, 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 about stuff like that. She was just saying stuff, like, in front of everybody. So I thought they were a good match, but, boy, they are, like, gossipy, sassy people.
2: Yes, who like to drink. <laughs> I if, I think her perfume is probably vermouth uh, scented. Oh, would be my guess. Uh, yeah, I liked her too. She definitely seems like someone who has who can only stand Ward in small doses,
1: and vice versa. I think Ward's got his limits.
2: They are a match because they spend so much time apart. Is my guess because they're both. Probably long days. Fun to be around for a party, but I don't know if you'd want to live with them 24 hours a day. Oh, I wanted to ask you, because I wasn't sure if I was hearing this right, or does Aurora insinuate in the drawing room back in the Van Ryn house that Ward is gay? What did you hear her say? Uh, Aurora is saying that she's going to Newport for 10 days with Mrs. Russell, and they're staying at the McAllister's house. Ada says, for 10 days, there has to be someone going with you besides just you and Mr. McAllister. Basically, like, you're not going to be alone with this man. And Aurora says something along the lines of, there are more people going. Mrs. is going to be there, and she names the Russells are going to be the Gladys and uh, Bertha. But she says something along the lines of, I'd be safer with him anyway than like oh. whiskey or something. She makes some yeah. comment of of all the people who may do something. Ward McAllister is not the person who's going to do something.
1: I took that as like he just is. Asexual? <laughs> kind of. I don't know if it, it was a, a comment on his sexuality so much as just he isn't looking at it like that. Like we are all just like gossipy, like people that hang out and like laugh with and stuff like that. He isn't going that direction.
0: Every summer we talk about taking a house there, but we never do. And now Mr. McAllister's asked me up for 10 days. You can't be going alone to stay with Mr. McAllister. I'd be safe as brandy if I were.
2: (laughs) That's why it it made me turn my head. Like, I, I listened to it a couple times, and I kept hearing it the same way. So I'm curious if anyone else heard her words there. John Adams. John Adams. I I like John. I like John a lot. I've liked John since the show started. Not since the show started. I like John since like the second time that we met John when we got to see kind of how Oscar treats him really kind of poorly. And my heart has only kind of continued to grow for John as Oscar has treated him, I think, worse and worse. What did you think? Well, let, let's start at the very beginning. What did you think of their uh, little discussion in the pub that started this episode where John learned again that Oscar is still going to be pursuing Gladys? The, the waiter comes and says, are we finished? And he has that great line of, yeah, I think we are finished. Did you take that in a final way? What What was your what was your take about it?
1: I definitely took it like John has had quite enough. Uh, You know, this is ridiculous. Much like Rakes, I mean, I feel like Oscar spends all of his time talking to John about, you know, his other conquests and things that he's working on rather than being in a relationship with John. You know, we've seen very little of the two of them just enjoying their time together. It's always like Oscar's like exploits and things that he's going to be trying to what you know, what schemes he's trying to pull next. So, you know, I understand that that's partially John's role is for Oscar to actually have an opportunity to tell us what he's thinking. But at the same time, I mean, there, I think John is starting to fill out as a character and he is, you know, starting to roar back about like, you know, you know what? Like, I'm a pretty good catch and I don't need to sit around here and listen to your stuff.
6: Wouldn't you like me to come? Of course. I should get started. Long as long the train she wants us to catch. What's the matter? Larry Russell told me that his mother and sister are going to be in Newport at the same time as me. So you're still determined on her? I am. And bumping into her at Newport would be perfect. John, be reasonable. What do you think would happen? That doesn't mean that I want it to happen. I want what's best for you. And you should want what's best for me. The difference is I love you. <laughs> Where do you think we are? But I do. And I don't see why we can't just carry on as before. Because I don't have enough money for the way I want to live and because behavior which attracts no gossip in a young man starts to make people wonder as we get older. I can't have that. Are you finished, Monsieur? Yes, I think we probably are.
2: Oh, such good good uh, delivery there at the end yes I think we are but there's there's a telltale line in there where Oscar says I don't have enough money for me to live the way I want to live not for us to live the way we want to live not to take care of you not for us to be in a relationship together no no Oscar is just talking about himself here which John should see his own red flag and maybe he does
1: I think he probably does it just in his own words he probably does uh.
2: He deserves so much better than Oscar.
1: Him showing up in Newport, though, was like the best revenge. I mean, it was actually going after Gladys. Yes. Yes, John. Like perfect move on your part. And guess what? John is way, way, way a bigger catch in my mind than Oscar.
2: Uh, for sure, it doesn't go unnoticed either, right? Even at the dinner, the Mamie Fish New People dinner, John is is busy wooing Gladys. Oscar and Bertha both comment on it, and Oscar says, well, "You know, we've got to keep her, we've got to keep her close and keep her safe." And Bertha looks at him like, "Who the fuck are you? Like, you know, like I—that's my job. Like, you down boy."
1: And like you have no dibs on her so zip right. It.
2: right right i'm keeping her safe as from you as from the relative to the former president by the way van ryan guy yeah so mm-hmm. I, I think oscar oscar not as plotting as he is as clever as he thinks he is i think john threw him for a huge loop when he showed up and like oh i'm staying at the wet mowers he's not even staying with baby fish which is where he said he would stay originally which is where oscar and larry are staying he is like no, no, I completely ambushed you here. I found another house to keep me for the weekend. Fantastic. I loved it. I loved it so much. I thought it was hysterical and a a masterstroke for him. Like, why should he, why should he sit at home alone? Right? He can play the same game Oscar's playing.
1: It's a fantastic plot twist. I mean, it means that, you know, he can be the one that holds all the wealth and let Oscar come running back to him. Watch it play out. I enjoy this very much.
2: John. Did you notice when they were playing tennis, Gladys and Oscar were on the same team. Gladys hit a tennis ball directly directly into oscar's head and he fell on the ground
1: yes that was super funny <laughs> it was super funny
2: and 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 you hear her because the camera pans away to where the older ladies are and you hear gladys say oh i'm so sorry <laughs> and it so made funny. me wonder if that was planned if it was if it was shenanigans and they were just told to go have fun with the tennis ball or did she hit him by accident and they just kept it because it was hysterical but it it almost seemed a little impromptu to nail him the way she does little blueberry A little blueberry I I've played doubles tennis before, and I've definitely hit my partner in the head from behind. <laughs> <laughs> Good so, God. Well, I mean, sometimes you don't know where your racket's going to go. Because he, he plays it not perfectly. He falls on the ground, and it's very funny, which, you know, maybe it's a blooper. Maybe it just felt like, you know, having a lot of fun. But I found it very funny, and I watched it a bunch. We have to talk about the end of the Newport scenes. One, how bold is Bertha to be asking how much they, the Astros paid for the Beachwood house?
1: There was so much to this Bertha Going over to the Astors and everything having to do with this Aster house that felt like, girl, you in trouble. Like, you need to watch what you're doing. You're asking questions that are like pushing too far. And of course, they're actually physically going over there. I was like, you might be biting off more than you can chew here. Like, it was really making me nervous.
2: It was watching Mrs. McAllister and Aurora grab their smelling salt when she asks how much it is. And then Ward tells her, it's really Ward who shows the poor judgment in these scenes. One, for telling her. And Ward is the one who says, I could get you in there. Now, is Ward just flexing his power and trying to impress Bertha because he sees the handwriting on the wall? Or does he generally like Bertha and wants to be sees her, you know, sniffing out her power as the future head of society and wants to, you know, make his make his mark there and be a good friend to her and open doors. But it's really his poor judgment, one, on answering how much the Astors paid for in a gossipy way. Because they don't flinch. Mrs. McAllister her in a word, don't flinch. Really, at her asking the question, they flinch at Ward telling her that they paid about two hundred thousand dollars for it. It's
1: super unusual to talk about it like that. Like, yes. I mean, it's so easy to be like, "Oh, who can know?" You know, who who knows what deals they strike or something. Like, it's very weird that he actually put a money money amount to it. But also, like, you're asking me, do I think that Ward sees the writing on the wall? I mean, I do think that you know, attending things like you know the new people lunch and stuff like that. There's parts to him that absolutely know that the rain can't, can't be forever and there's going to be changes and he has to be, you know, straddling that line between old and new so that whomever comes out on top, he can still hang with the rich people, you know. So there's all that going on. I just I he really was taking such a gigantic chance that I had I don't think it was about just liking her. I really think he thinks she's the future and so he was willing to really risk a lot more than I I really think was reasonable.
2: Right. So from his standpoint, because everyone sticks to these plans so rigidly, he probably didn't see it as that big of a risk, right? Hefty and 100 bucks to get Hefty to look the other way for a downstairs tour? Not a big deal until the Astors show up, right? Until Mrs. Astor and Carrie show up in their carriage, then it becomes a horrible plan. Like, my God, what have you done? When he turns to Hefty and says... Get rid of Mrs. Russell. I was so mortified on her behalf that she was being ushered out through like a thief. She was being thrown, literally thrown out of this house and the indignity of the situation. I don't know how she is not even just weeping at the end of that scene.
1: Oh, I think she's just livid, you know, that she's been put in this position that she still cannot just be greeted at the front door and that she doesn't have a right to be in these people's home. The way that they filmed it was extremely impactful. Every time she turned around, there was like another servant doing something disgusting or or menial or whatever that she was just like, I cannot believe that this is the people I am having to keep company with. And when she was like shoved out that back door, you can tell the ground was like muddy or something because she actually kind of slips forward. Oh my God! I mean, her face. Oh,
2: I, as, as she's being ushered out, and she's doing, and the camera is like popping every like a nude thing in her face, and
1: it was like a haunted house. <laughs> it was like a haunted
2: house, but it just showed like she almost seemed disoriented. Like, what is happening to me? I own a palace. I own fucking Versailles in Manhattan, and I'm being shoved out where they're plucking the chickens. But she gathers herself as only Bertha can. And this is what I have in my quote. This is the quote from my notes. The look of fury and indignation, capital F, capital I, on Bertha's face is one to not fuck with as we go into the finale next week. She looks like if there if you could see closely, there is fire coming off of her body.
1: It reminded me back to episode one when she's like laying on the bed and her face just turns to like stone and you can see her eyes just get so pissed off like "Mm -mm, this is this is not how she's going to be treated. And she's come so far up the ladder that I think this was like getting kicked in the neck and like being sent all the way back down, you know, all in that moment. Like she knows she can recover. She knows this is going to be okay but god damn she climbed so high this should not have had to happen to her
2: watching this scene was particularly impactful coming off of the conversation that carrie and her mother had had the night before in carrie's bedroom when she pleads she's trying to plead to her mother to change her mind about the Russells that she so she could attend the quadrille, which is not something gladys doesn't know is in limbo now but it sounds like that carrie may not be able to participate in this quadrille with this new friend that she's been practicing with and that she's been making and seems to legitimately enjoy let's listen to mrs astor how she really thinks what she really thinks of bertha and the russell's money
0: of course i can't go she's no worse than mrs jay gould i do not receive mrs gould i do not attend her entertainments mrs ogden mills you go there carrie mrs mills was born a livingston her family have been landowners for two centuries or more It is not my fault she married an upstart. Besides, her mother asked me not to punish her for it, and I won't. So why punish Mrs. Russell? She has come from nothing, and her husband is no better. You called him a force to be reckoned with. Well, It does not mean that I am obliged to sit in his wife's drawing room. I think you're being unkind. My dear, to be a leader means sometimes one must be unkind. It is not a role for the faint-hearted.
1: We talked about this in a previous episode about, you know, heavy is the head that, that wears the crown, and that's the situation with her. Like, she's fine with not being liked by everybody because she's got these standards to uphold. What I was most surprised about this entire scene was actually how much she was willing to answer to Carrie. I thought that she would have a lot more, like, you listen to your mother, you know, it was very, like, thinking to Agnes and, like, I'm making a demand. This is a direct order. Like, I wasn't hearing any of that verbiage out of Mrs. Astor, I, I was quite surprised that she went back and forth with her daughter and didn't really have like that you're going to listen to what I say at the end. She was much more open with this relationship. She
2: has been known with Carrie and not once have we seen them interact where she has put Carrie in her place.
1: But few people, like we said, like George, few people are at that level and are willing to have to take any kind of backtalk or no, they're not willing to volley with the underlings. So I really was like, wow, she she has a lot more patience for the situation than I expected.
2: Just thinking about this whole clip, and I think it's a genius clip for an underlying theme that we've had on this podcast, that Mrs. Astor and what she does with society is her business. And she treats it as if she is the head of a large, powerful company. She is the George Russell of her empire, and her empire is high society. So listening to her talk is exactly how George – would we'll talk about business and how we've seen George talk about business with Thornburg, with the alderman, with anyone who steps in his way, with Miss Dixon, uh, with Ainsley, uh, Mrs. Ainsley in this episode, uh, you know, aka uh, Mrs. Dixon in this episode. I mean, how how he talks to people who threaten his business is how he, as how Mrs. Astor is talking about the way she has to execute her rules of society and who she lets in and who she doesn't. You know, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. The faint of heart, I mean, it, this is not the game for weak uh, for weaklings right that's uh a george and fane talking to each other can't cry if you play the game right this is how mrs a- this is mrs astor's kind of words too this is her business she is the head of this company this empire and she's not going to apologize for her. why is she so solicitous of carrie and 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 talking to her rather than just giving her edicts I think it's because the same way George assumed Larry would take over his family business and had to learn how to run it I think part of that is Carrie Mrs. Astor is is grooming Carrie to be the next generation Mrs. Astor knows that she will not be here one day and that society has to be run by someone and so she's giving this lesson to her daughter I mean it's at her expense of her friendship but it is also an important rule for how you have to run the family business and the family business for us as society. So that's why. That's why I think because I, I think it's a great point and I, I thought about it a bunch.
1: I will go with you on that, except I have to add, she still does not have to give that lesson with such a kind tone. True. She does not have to have this level of patience. We saw George interact with Larry about business and stuff like that. Guess what? George doesn't talk like that. You know, so I was just surprised that she was like willing to, just way more delicate, way more kind than I thought someone at her stature with people who are willing to run around behind her back. Lord, Bertha Russell is running out the (laughs) back door because of her those people who send people running don't tend to use a nice tone not with anyone not even their children
2: true but to carrie's credit though she also doesn't shrink from her mother i don't think ward would make the same plea and complaint to mrs astor that carrie makes here you know, she's throwing money like you take gold money you allow this money you allow that money you know Ogden's money you know I don't think Ward is going to, to be so in her face you know taking her to task so I think I think game recognizes game a little bit I think Carrie is an Aster and and can and can take it to her mother a little bit and I think I think Mrs. Aster respects that in, and knows that she can treat her not as an equal but as a uh, as like a, a Simba to, the, as to her Mufasa.
1: It, it was a surprising relationship that I that I look forward to. I want to see how this actually goes.
2: I love Donna Murphy. I wish we had more of her. Every time, we haven't had a ton of her uh, playing Mrs. Astor, but every time she's been on screen, I've just, I was like, I get it. I believe you. I I get you are this role, and I've really enjoyed it. It, it feels like we're coming to a head. That look on Bertha's face as she is unceremoniously thrown out of Beechwood makes me feel like these two are going to finally cross paths. Because remember, All of this climbing the ladder that Bertha's done, she still has not actually come face-to-face with Mrs. Astor. So uh, I'm looking forward to the finale, uh, these two finally meeting head-on. Let's stay with Gladys for a little bit because we were talking about Carrie, and that's what prompted her disagreement with uh, her mother. Did it it seem to you that it was dawning on Gladys that this event, this quadrille, her ball, really has nothing to do with her and is really all about her mother and her mother's plans?
1: little by little I think at first you know when they're just dancing and having fun and stuff I think she's she's not having an issue but when they started talking about the dresses and and really when she was like don't you want to know like what I wanted to look like or anything and she was like no it, like it's all done I, even I like I kind of clenched up like I was like not cool Bertha like I don't like that you should have at least asked some general things to her like this is kind of what I'm talking about like here you have Bertha this is the way she treats Gladys versus Mrs. Astor and Carrie like there is no respect for Gladys at all she's not allowed to be a part of any of the planning it's a lot you know I mm, I hope that Gladys can like hang in there and that this turns out good but she has every right to be a little like dude this is my party like can I say anything (laughs) You
2: see on her face, the worry is creeping in of I have no say here. Like no one really gives a shit about anything. And this is my ball.
1: Well, it's presented like it's all been taken care of. Like you don't need to have anything to do with it because, you know, tap, tap, tap on the top of your head. You know, you don't need to be worrying about it. That is a very tricky way to say it. But eventually here, I think it is going to seep in that she doesn't have a say.
2: It was it not a question. It is it is an order. Uh, how worried do we as viewers have to be that Bertha has ordered all of these costumes for these eight dancers plus the after quadrille ball gown that Gladys will wear? And we haven't seen it. I feel like in TV tropes, this is where she comes out looking like a mermaid or a swan or something <laughs> atrocious. Now, Bertha, I think, has better taste than that. But also the TV watcher in me feels like it's going to be a hideous shit show.
1: Well, and one of the reasons that why Turner, like, was hired and stuck around was to help her with her style and taste. So that kind of implied that maybe Bertha didn't really trust her own style and taste. I don't know if everything's going to go totally to shit like a mermaid costume, but I definitely think that it's fair to be a little, like, on the lookout to make sure that everything actually looks right, because I don't know that it necessarily has to.
2: There's a nice moment in the beginning of the episode where George is talking to Clay about the trial and he has this, this moment where he stops to reflect on what a trial would mean for
4: Bertha. Let's listen to this clip. Will Mrs. Russell need any special arrangements at the hearing? She's not coming. Tomorrow she leaves for Newport. Hmm. It's probably better. Makes it less of a story. If this case goes forward to trial, then all her plans will crumble to dust. No one will
6: come to the ball. There'll be outcasts. It doesn't worry me, but it would worry her.
4: I doubt Mrs. Russell would be sunk for long. She'd be flattered you'd have such faith in her. Uh,
2: that was the only real marriage aspect to tonight's episode. Was this one little clip, and I liked it because it was George having a moment of reflection about what it all means to bertha without bertha having to be there in front of him and i think it's always important to see what people think about or say about their partners or how they consider their partners when their partners aren't standing in front of them so i like this moment but just because we had so little george bertha interaction this episode i wanted to highlight it
1: do you think it was unusual or was it was it totally the right move to not have bertha there at the hearing
2: oh the right move the right the right move i don't think there's anything gained from it because if it goes bad it's even more embarrassing for her if it goes well i, I don't think she sways it the way so i think it's just downside to to her being there you know because if it goes against him i don't think he wants his wife to watch him be called a murderer or a scoundrel or found out he's gonna have to go to trial
1: in a way I think her being in, in Newport also provides like a distraction like you know the M- Mamie Fishes of the world are talking about Bertha being in Newport you know and they're sort of distracted instead of paying attention to what George is doing it
2: also allows them all to be like we've got nothing to hide we haven't done anything wrong if we were worried I mean Bertha says this to, to Mamie Fish she says if he was on trial I wouldn't be here I would be at home we're good we're golden my husband didn't do anything he's not a murderer we're just doing our business and my business has me in Newport right now. I think It's a smart PR move smart. that we have got nothing to worry about. Otherwise, obviously, I wouldn't be here in the fun and sun at the casino in tennis with you, Mamie Fish. I would be home supporting my family kind of thing.
1: Right? Stay in your lane. Keep doing what you're doing. They won't attract any attention. Let's talk about
2: the Russell investigation and this train accident. It wraps up in this episode. Were you surprised that it wrapped up in this episode?
1: Well, it turned out to be kind of more of an Agatha Christie kind of moment where it was like, dun-dun-dun, like and it, there was a little twist and you found out who did it. And it was like, bam, you know, it all kind of happened. So, yeah, I was surprised there wasn't seemingly any like loose ends or anything to deal with. It was just very cut and dry. And it all came out.
2: I like that it revealed itself like a murder mystery. You know, you and I both recently saw uh, Death on the Nile, uh, a Agatha Christie movie adaptation. And so at least for me anyway, uh, me and Tom have been in murder mystery crime solving mode. So I like this aspect of it, because we got to solve the crime before – we knew before George and his lawyers did, right? Because we got to watch the interaction in Bloomingdale's of the stenographer going by the name Dixon, buying expensive gloves. A stenographer you know at George's company shouldn't be able to afford anything in Bloomingdale's. What is she doing there using this name Dixon, which we know is the tainted name of the company in the trial? And then, and then watching the interaction in the house where Marion not understanding what's happening clay and george uh, miss dixon you must mean miss ainsley she's like well whatever she charged under the name dixon like for there the crime is solved for us we know the answer to it but we still have to go to the hearing and watch it play out did that deflate it for you did the hearing have a little bit less oomph because we already knew the mystery was solved we knew what the answer was
1: No, because I was excited. Like as it was going, I was like, "Ooh, ooh!" Like I was really like I was like pointing out like to the screen, like, "Oh God!" Like it's totally that lady. We knew it was going to be like one of his, you know, aides in some way. Whether it was going to be a servant, it was going to be someone at work. Like we knew other people were going to be at play here, and there was that sort of like time factor where it's like she wasn't in the courtroom, and they work on waiting around, and we didn't really have the information yet. So it was like, like we she had a step foot, and then it was like, "Oh God, yes, she's there." Plus, good. God, when Dixon shouts out, like...
4: (laughs) Is there anyone else you are familiar with? No. Mr. Dixon, will you please stand? Do you know this man? No. You're quite sure of that? Quite sure. And why were you seen together in the department store Bloomingdale's? That's not true. I think it is true. No, it's not. I have it on good authority. No, I used his charge account, but we weren't there together. Shut up! And when precisely did you give the note to Mr. Dixon?
5: After the crash had happened. He'd written it a while before, but when I read it, I could see it might be useful in the future. So I kept it.
4: You knew what Dixon was doing. I guess. This was not the first time he had appropriated money meant for another purpose. I never knew the details. Only the fact of his dishonesty. Why was the note actually written?
5: Mrs. Russell had used the Herter brothers for some of the decoration at their new house on Fifth Avenue. So Mr. Russell got an estimate from them to renovate his office. But in the end, he thought they were too expensive, and he
4: went elsewhere. That's one question answered. Mr. Russell. You are
6: exonerated. You may go with your reputation intact.
2: That's so important to hear at the end of that, right? Because if there's going to be a byline or a headline in the newspaper, it's got to be, from Georgia's standpoint, Russell exonerated, honor intact. I I love that. That whole scene, and I let that clip play. I I edited out the Bridget stuff in the middle of it uh, just so you could hear the whole clip because it really just is just making neat little bows, everything getting tied up all the way down to the note. Which, in fact, was a real note. It was just from a different reason.
1: It was well done. I think that it it was like its own little murder mystery type thing, like all like in this like just a couple minutes, really. I mean, and it all played out. It was it was fun. And it, as a viewer, it was like there was all the the like excitement and drama of the shut up. Like, I enjoyed it very much.
2: And I love, I love the lawyer, Mr. Lou, Lew- oh, no, it was Mr. Brand, I think was the lawyer who was, who was uh, questioning her. You know, he's like, uh, you were seen together. Oh, no, we weren't together. I think you were, you know, he's just baiting her into saying that she used a charge account under his name, which of course, I mean, she did and she admits it. And that's what prompts the shut up, <laughs> you know, for good <laughs> God, woman. But, awesome. uh, uh, by the way, the Herder brothers who are referenced in that, they're the ones who gave the two high estimates. For, uh, George's remodel of his office were actually an interior design company, uh, like one of the first fully dedicated interior design companies they existed in the 1800s. We'll have all of their information, uh, on the Facebook page. Um, but they had as their clients, like all of the new money families. They had Morgan, Jay Gould's family, Ogden Mills. They represented all of these people. I think they did, they did work for the Vanderbilts. Um, so they were an actual interior design company company at the time that someone like bertha would have used so just a nice little attention to detail uh, on the show's part as much as i enjoyed the hearing i gotta tell you george's justice george's vengeance i love when they let his eyes blow red and you get <laughs> one of those goddamn morgan Spector's beard starts talking and laying down the law about the way things are going to be i get so fucking excited and uh yeah it, it didn't disappoint what did you think of his uh well let's listen to the clip and then we'll talk about his uh his Smackdown. What do you want?
5: Only me to say how sorry I am that I ever did such a thing, Mr. Russell?
6: Did you think it was right before? And now you're sorry because you've been caught? I believe you should go to jail, Miss Ainsley. But whether a jury agrees with me or not, I will tell you what I have decided would be best for you as a plan.
5: Anything you want to ask of me? Good.
6: I will keep abreast of your movements. And whenever you apply for a job above the rank of the most menial servant, I will inform your superiors of your history and make it impossible for them to employ you. You may
4: scrub floors to earn your bread, but nothing more.
5: You don't mean that. I think you know that I do.
2: I think you know that I do. I think we do know that you do, George. I think that's exactly how you will spend your days scouring the one ads for for jobs that Mrs. Ainsley may apply to in the future so that you could show up. I think that's exactly how you're going to be
1: that punishment was wicked, but well earned. I mean, this woman was evil. She knew what was going on, and she turned a blind eye, and the the horrible thing is, we saw her, like, interacting with him. She was totally normal, nice, friendly, laughing, blah, blah, blah.
2: Like a loyal servant to him. (laughs) Right, well, on his face, right, she tells him that you're going to win the fight, right, when he takes on the alderman. She's the one who brings the papers after the crash to talk about the press coverage. Other than Clay, she's the only other Russell Consolidated uh, Trust employee that we have seen a lot of. She has been a staple since the beginning of the show.
1: It was a lot. But you know what? He he has to do what he has to do. And he has to make sure that these people respect him and that nobody would ever do this again to him.
2: It's the Thornburg law, right? He has to make an example and spend the money to make an example of Mr. Thornburg so that no one else tries to fuck with him in the future. This is how George, this is how George does. And I, I got to think it's effective. People are going to be hesitant to steal money from him or cross him inside the company or outside the company after seeing how he's going to take her to the woodshop. Let's circle back to secrets. We have talked about Peggy's secret. We have talked about Miss Ainsley aka Dixon's secret. We have talked about Marion and Mr. Rakes' elopement secret. But there's still plenty more secrets to be had in this episode because now we have to shift to the downstairs intrigue. We haven't talked too much about Jack and Jack and Bridget. What did you think of this character development? Again, we're at the penultimate episode of season one. We're running out of steam to introduce new plots and new characters before the end of the season. We only have one episode left. What did you think of this development of Learning about Jack going to the cemetery, we learned he lost his mom and his aunt and the aunt's baby and the Peshtigo fire of Wisconsin of eighteen seventy one. His father has died. He doesn't have a relationship with his two brothers. A lot of Jack exposition in this episode. Did you like it? Was was this you were interested in Jack? Did you did you get what you needed from from this episode?
1: We certainly got a lot of information and a lot of background. To be honest with you, I was a little like everything else was going on that was way more exciting with the Russells. I was like okay hey, like, this is our time to kind of exhale from all the running around with Bertha and the George like drama, it was all very exciting. So Jack's story to me felt like, all right, this is when you like eat your sandwich and like take a drink and kind of just like listen to this story, you know, but there was nothing that was so shocking or upsetting or really anything but just sort of have a moment where maybe Bridget and Jack can finally kind of start moving forward a little bit because they've had this little bonding moment where he shared his story.
2: So the Peshtigo Fire of 1871, Jack mentions that it happened actually on the same day as the the Chicago Fire, you know, that dumb cow that tipped over the lantern. It actually was. And so that's the fire that people remember uh, from October 8th, 1871. But the Pistigo Fire actually was considered the worst wildfire ever in the country. Uh, It scorched 1.2 to 1.5 million acres. Over 800 lives were lost in Peshtigo alone. Over 1,200 lives were lost total. It did about $160 million worth of damage at the, t- at, the, at, the, at the time, which was about the same amount of damage as the Chicago fire. It burned 16 other towns down. Uh, the damage in Peshtigo was the worst, though. Some survivors said that the fire moved so fast it was like a tornado. The like a tornado is a quote crazy. I mean, it, it's it's still considered one of the worst natural fires ever in this country, that no one's ever heard of. But the show just pulling on like real historical, uh, real historical events.
1: I enjoy very much when they layer those in, and we get a chance to get more of a feel for what was going on and things like that, where it's like you know fire departments and and all the things that we do now, you know, just were not as as um, hardy and couldn't really do anything to control this kind of stuff. So it again kind of reminds you of where we are and the kind of that weird mix of like we're moving forward, but there's still like this all this old stuff that 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 can like take you out with like a second.
2: It's true. It's true. And, and there's some irony in it that it is Jack who is so young Dealing with the consequences is something that even in 1882 happened a long time ago. I mean, it happened 11 years ago uh, at this point in the show's chronology. There's something tragically sweet or tragically ironic about it. Uh, what do you think overall of Jack and Bridget? This this was a plot line that they introduced with them going to Pistor's theater to watch The Lantern Show, and then they kind of dropped. Then we learned a little bit about Bridget's history, and maybe that's why she was so standoffish to Jack, but they really haven't revisited that. Does this whole plotline feel like season two fodder the introduction of there are two other Jack's brothers out there uh, also I have in my notes maybe that's a season two thing. Do you think we're gonna revisit these uh, these two young kids?
1: Absolutely. I think that Jack having this like confessional kind of moment with Bridget is super important for them to actually be able to move forward. She was treating him very much like he was just this outsider stranger trying to make a move on her and stuff like that. Now I think having bared his soul and and exposed that he was actually, you know, carrying these flowers to his mom and stuff, that's very sweet. You know, there's there's a lot there that I think that Bridget can work with to try to overcome her own worries and, and actually give him a chance so i look forward to season two bridget and jack
2: a nice little banister moment here is it occurred to me banister who has been so stingy with people getting days off or leaving early the entire season because it's actually come up quite a bit especially from jack can i leave early can i have this day off can bridget have this day off he doesn't give him any guff at all in the couple of times that he takes off early in this episode and it occurred to me banister must know And I thought that was a nice sweet moment that Bannister must know why he's asking off early. It's not that he's going to try and get a girl or do something, you know, of ill repute. Because why else would he not be giving him a problem? He's actively saying, no, no, it's okay for you to go.
1: Yeah, he seemed compassionate, and that and that was like a, again a nice layer to starting to understand how how all these relationships t- come together in the downstairs.
2: I did like that, though. Bannister is still in the doghouse, which it seems to be lessening, but it's he's still there in the doghouse. I did like that he took time to go across the street and uh, fuck with Church a little bit and c- <laughs> kind of make a veiled threat that you have nothing to worry about at least today.
1: No, I totally. I man, that's the most fun. I mean, he he is he knows the information now. It's just like how is he going to actually play this out i look forward to how when he decides to drop that
2: the most fun plot lines are the ones where they're just playing with their food before they eat them Um, and, and that's not to say i'm not sympathetic to church i actually think church has to take a lot of shit in his life uh from bertha and 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 his insecurities but what he did to Bannister was, was not okay. So I'm happy that uh, Bannister is having some fun with him. Jack's secret was not the only secret, though, downstairs uh, in in the downstairs households. We learned a little bit about Mr. Watson or Mr. Collier, should we say. That was say. a
1: very unexpected storyline to start up with. I was like, oh, yeah, we're going to go back to him. And like, what exactly is going on with this Collier? I mean, my God, it seemed like a hundredth character to be following <laughs>
3: Is there something I can help you with? I've noticed
5: you watching me. You don't know me. Should I? Mr.
4: Collier.
2: I have not been able to find a Flora McNeil from the 1800s. There is a singer... From the twentieth century, she was a a Scottish Gaelic singer named Flora McNeil, who was like popular in like the fifties. That's clearly not this woman. So I'm curious who is Flora McNeil? What is the significance of his real name is Collier? She she acts like she's shocked where she's almost going to pass out. She she, Yeah,
1: she looks stricken for sure.
2: Yeah, she turned and kind of turns and runs from him, turns and runs Mm -hmm. from him, but she's also very young. Uh, certainly younger than he is i I'm so confused. I have no idea. I gotta tell you this ramped right up to the top of my list of things I'm interested to know more about though.
1: <laughs> well when you finish out other other mysteries, you've gotta you know start a new one, so I'm looking forward to that.
2: This definitely is in the mystery deepens probably feels like a season two uh unveil but they've they've slow rolled this storyline so far this is now the second time we've seen him spying here we know he's taking but walks only really-
1: the second time after eight episodes
2: right exactly so they're taking their time with this this doesn't feel like something that's going to get wrapped up next week uh so we're definitely going to uh, i think revisit in season two now here's the thing michael Cerverus, tony winning actor i actually saw him in assassins for which he won the tony back in like 2004 like the guy is like a heavyweight broadway guy so it makes sense that they're going to give him something interesting to do and maybe he just has to wait around to season two to to get to lift some heavy weight i mean he's not audrey mcdonald heavyweight broadway or or even Danae benton but he's pretty much he's kind of a big deal so i i think they're going to give him something pretty interesting or meaty to do uh on the show is my guess
1: that's exciting we need some more mysteries to to start back up
2: so this was definitely a mystery deepens, but we had the introduction of a brand new mystery. We see Monsieur Boudin arguing with an unidentified woman out in the middle of the street. What is it with these people having these arguments in the middle of the streets <laughs> when everyone is watching all the time?
1: Where is he supposed to go, I guess? <laughs> an <laughs> alleyway? <starts> to... <laughs> I don't know.
2: There's got to be alleys. Yeah, they, we you know,
1: not too much of that. We, saw, we guess we saw with like flour and food delivery. But... Walk,
2: walk down the street to the park? I don't know. You're doing it right out in front of your workers' your employees lawyer's house though
1: sometimes you can't control when those when those uh, spats are gonna happen
2: this is this is the introduction though right because the the nosy staff ask him kind of straight on do you want to tell us anything more about it uh including watson who i don't know that you should be asking to reveal anyone's <laughs> secrets sir monsieur right? Callier. <laughs> but monsieur baudin d- uh, declines to answer what's your guess here sister wife lover
1: from what I understand from Downton Abbey, uh, wives coming back is pretty common. I think that that happens right? At least once, at least, maybe more than once. So
2: The old Bates treatment.
1: uh, Yeah, I'm going with that, just because that feels like uh, who you'd argue with in the street.
2: (laughs) Yeah, few people can make you argue like that, except for a wife. (laughs) Or (laughs) husband. Or husband. uh, A spouse. A spouse. uh, It takes takes a certain kind of spouse to make you argue like that in the the middle of the street. So... uh, another secret and with that i think we've hit all of the secrets i have one more clip i wanted to play there wasn't a great place to put it other than in under general agnes wit and wisdom but i thought it was a good indicator i always like spotting these little bits of information where agnes reveals how much of the old guard she is as a new yorker as a lifelong new yorker i thought it was funny that she brings up saratoga springs let's listen to this clip
0: Aurora's going to Newport tomorrow. Oh, how funny. I've just been talking
3: about Newport with Larry Russell. He and Oscar are on their way to stay with Mrs. Fish. Why does everyone have to go to
5: Newport now? What's wrong with Saratoga Springs? It was very fashionable when I was a
0: bride. Exactly.
2: Now Saratoga Springs actually was uh, the place to be. Um, in 1863, Saratoga Race Course uh, opened. Saratoga uh, Race Course is actually still open. It's still one of the two big things that people go to Saratoga Springs for. Though it actually moved to its current location in uh, 1864. Horse racing, its associated betting, greatly increased the city's attraction as a tourist destination at a time when horse racing was a popular national spectator sport. In addition, the Saratoga Springs uh, area was known for its gambling, which was eventually made illegal, by at this point was very popular, and it had the natural springs, whereas the springs part of Saratoga Springs comes in. For the people in Agnes's generation, it was the getaway. It was a place, where it was a big resort place where people, like rich people would go, and they would soak their troubles away before, like, the Newport Rhode Islands of the world sprang up and replaced that as a must-go-to destination. Uh, I gotta tell you, Saratoga Springs actually a very beautiful part of New York. Very pretty. There's the Saratoga uh, Performing Arts Center, which gets a lot of great concerts every year. You have the racetrack is still there. So if you're ever in New York and and way upstate New York, go check out Saratoga Springs.
1: Hey, Mike, do you have any predictions for season two or most especially our finale?
2: now that we're back uh, in town presumably Newport's going to be over after that kind of disastrous Beechwood ending I feel like the ball is going to take center stage for this finale just based on the Vanderbilt story that they seem to be following I think there's going to be some good fireworks between Bertha and Mrs. Astor especially given that look of fury on Bertha's face when she's uh, thrown out of Beechwood in this episode so that's my big prediction I think a lot of the finale is going to focus on that, which I'm excited about. Um, I think this is a major step for Bertha that she has to climb and succeed at. She will be seriously thrown down the ladder if this quadrille doesn't come off in a good way, I think. That's my bold prediction. I'd like to see some movement or resolution with Marion and Mr. Rake's I don't know if we're going to get the resolution that we want or a full resolution, but I'd like to see where that story goes to because it's been such a lone part of the season.
1: I want to finish out Peggy's storyline more completely. I don't want it to just be like, and she went back to Brooklyn. I really hope that we continue to follow her and figure out what's going on with this mystery. Of course, I I expect we will follow her her career at the Globe and see what happens more with that. That will all be exciting. I'm looking forward to John also now like being this like, fly-in the ointment over with gladys i'm looking forward to see if he's going to continue to do that and what what that's going to actually yield i think it could be a lot of fun this is caroline
2: and this is mike thank you for listening to new money old rules the gilded age podcast if you wouldn't mind heading over to apple Podcasts, spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate review and subscribe and while you're there please leave us a five star rating because if you do you know what we're going to read a review on the air like this one from judith 212 at apple Podcasts. the best five stars Mike and Caroline's discussion about the Gilded Age HBO is best podcast on the series, full of insights and information. So well done. Thank you, Judas 212. That was very sweet of you to write that. And you know what? Guys, give us the five stars readings. We're going to give you credit. We're going to read it on the air. We want to. It helps us. It helps you. We love it. We love you. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production.